Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. The only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss today will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today, we'll be discussing Arya 1 and Bran 2 of A Game of Thrones. Hey, Dan. Hello. (laughs) Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back, indeed. Yeah, you thought last week was an inciting incident. We've got like the yeah. the Lord of the Rings ending of inciting incidents here. Maybe next yeah, week we'll have another inciting incident. Oh, good. There's lots happening now, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, this we only read two chapters for this week, and uh, we we looked at Arya, we looked at Bran, and yes. good Arya gracious, one. it's our first Arya chapter, and Bran two, Bran two, and uh, wow. Not surprised, having now read them, why we picked only two chapters for this week, because what a moment to, to sort of end on. So I well, thought... Let's, uh, let's not yeah, get ahead of ourselves without, here. Without further ado, I thought I'd jump in and, and, and come with Arya and kind of kick us kick us off. So just as a little kick bit of away. context bringing us into the Arya chapter, so far we have, uh, and again, just sort of a very brief history of where we are. King Robert Baratheon with his retinue have arrived in Winterfell, Lord, I think Lord Eddard Stark's place of home. And he's a cool guy too. And we've learned a lot about Eddard and Robert's relationship. We are getting a sense of some of the relationships between the families and all of this. And last we left off was with Catelyn, uh, Eddard, Ned, Ned's wife, uh, basically with him, Ned and and Catelyn talking about the need of him becoming the Hand of the King, as well as the note from Catelyn's sister saying that her husband, John Arian, had been murdered, but not just murdered, murdered by the Queen, Cersei Lannister. There so we that's, go. That's, and, and how this makes it even more important that Ned, uh, as, as a Stark and as being requested by the King, goes down to the kingdom, to, the, to, to wherever the kingdom's held. Storm something? King's Landing. King's Landing. Uh, but goes there with Robert Baratheon to be there because this means that something's afoot. Something foul is afoot. He needs to be there. Catelyn understands this. She also says, no way in hell, and I'm just going to throw it in there because it's mentioned again in some of the chapters we're reading, but in no way in hell will Jon Snow, the bastard son, stay with her once Robert, uh, once uh, Ned is gone, in that she, he should go to the Night's Watch, as he has suggested uh, most recently. But All with right. that said, diving right in. Here we are with Arya, and we meet Arya for the first, uh, really, her perspective for the first time. We've heard of her. She is one of Ned Stark's children, uh, one of the daughters. I think she's the third oldest. She's not the youngest. She Maybe she's the second old, the second youngest. She's, she's the younger daughter. Yeah. Uh, she is older than Bran, but younger, older than Bran and Rickon, but younger Rickon, than Sansa right. and Rob, and younger than John. So of the five natural children, she is the middle child. So this chapter, from Arya's point of view, feels a lot like stage setting as well, uh, from a, like, like similar to some of the things that we've read, and not in any terrible kind of bad way. I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is really the first female child perspective that we've gotten from this book. Yes, uh, definitely. So it's well, interesting to... Danny might count as a child. Uh, this yeah, is younger. It is, definitely but it's younger. also s- situationally very different. So Danny yeah. has this sort of, you know, trying to, with Viserys, climb her way back uh, into into the graces of being in a king uh, as a king or a queen. Uh, and here's Arya as sort of like a like a lady noble, a uh, child noble, I guess. And that's a lot of what we start seeing here. And it was interesting to get her perspective. So we start with Arya kind of doing what lady nobles are kind of expected to do in these children nobles. She's in a stitching class. She's she, and she's terrible at it. We learn that she's kind of a tomboy. We learn that her sister Sansa, the older sister, is much more of that sort of stereotypical young female lady, if you will, and is really good at doing stitches. Yeah. I thought it was also interesting, just a lot of the perspective that Arya kind of per, like, like literally perspective her perspective of you know not fitting in, being too tomboy. You know, she kind of expresses like like how she's seeing things in in. Uh, like in the world around her, she she shows a lot of sort of, what's it called? Not greed, but uh, envy around her sister, Sansa. Sansa seems yeah. to be perfect at things. She is not. We also learned that uh, a little bit that she has a bit of a kind of an imagination. I specifically thinking about what she named her dire wolf, uh, Nymeria, yeah. named after Nymeria. Yeah. Nymeria, a fabled witch, I think, or some type of piratess, whatever. Yeah. So let me jump in real quick. I just yeah. want to set the scene a little bit and introduce some of the characters. 
Yeah, there's a lot of characters. Uh, that we were, we were learning about. So we're really getting insight into the women's circle, women's world of the castle of Winterfell. And Arya is in this needle lesson with Septa Mordain. Uh, so this is actually a callback to uh, Catelyn's first chapter where we hear about some of the Southern uh, religion. A Septa mm-hmm. is effectively a nun, but she is there as a teacher. She is, you know, the, the one taking care of the kids. Uh, and they're in this room. It's her and Sansa and a couple of the other young women that are in Winterfell at this moment, the Princess Marcella, and then two of the uh, sort of highborn, but less highborn than the Stark children. We have uh, Jane Poole, who is daughter of Winterfell's mm-hmm. steward and Sansa's best friend, and Beth Cassell, or Castle, uh, daughter of the Master at Arms. Uh, so both of these people have last names. Uh, their dads are Veon Poole and Sir Roderick. Cassell. Of course, Roderick's brother is Jory Cassell, captain of the guard. So we have people that are in and around the noble family. They're lesser houses. Uh, and so that's why they get to be included here. And Arya, Arya decides to leave the stitching circle. Uh, she finds herself a little a little offended at some of the, the things that, and I forget the woman's name, but I think it's Septa Mordain, right? Sep- Septa yeah. Mordain. Uh, but basically, you know, she, she, she doesn't want to be stitching. That's <laughs> where it comes. Yeah. She, so they have a conversation where Sansa is talking with Jane Poole about Prince Joffrey, talking about how gallant and handsome he seems. And the other girls say how great it is that Joffrey likes Sansa. And then Arya says, John says, Joffrey looks like a girl. And they get into a fight over John, which is what causes Septa Mordain mm-hmm. to come over, point out that Arya sucks at stitching. Everybody makes fun of Arya, and she runs out of the room crying in uh, yet another callback to John, who yes. we last saw running out of the room crying. And sure enough, uh, she and actually... that's when we meet Nymeria. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, she meet Nymeria, but then she goes right to, she finds John basically right away. Yeah. Uh, and so she goes from the stitching, gets her gets her dire wolf uh nymeria and then she's she wants to go watch the boys fence she doesn't want to uh go back to her room where she thinks she'll get reprimanded which we assume she will uh but she sits with john and something that i thought was interesting was the conversation that the women are having and sort of the the cuteness and the 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 pretty uh, the pretty eyes that they have they're casting pretty eyes at at joffrey and one of the first things that uh that we start to see is joffrey in a bit of a, a fence fencing match or, or about to be, you know, they, we come to a conversation. Yeah. Uh, Joffrey's in the yard with the potential of fencing with Rob again. And there's a little bit of snitting and, and back and forth. But John says something that I really love uh, to Arya, which is uh, Joffrey's a little shit. Uh, and I just yeah. thought how, how interesting to see this, these different male, female perspectives about this family. Again, there's age difference too, but yeah. uh, you have a few people kind of from the, from the, the, the male side kind of being like, who is this pompous, arrogant prince? And it's interesting to hear the girls kind of flirt and, and, and Twitter about, about him. Yeah. I also wanted to point out too, so we have Arya and John sitting kind of like up in a way watching what's going on with the sword practice that's happening between the men. Uh, and they, they John makes a, f- a few comments about how proud the Lannisters are that I just thought was interesting, specifically how on their on their coat of arms, they have not just the King Baratheon stag for their sigil, but they've actually stitched onto it. I think the it's a lion, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, but, but the lion of Lannister. They've quartered their sigil. You know, this is something that we see from medieval times a lot when multiple mm-hmm. houses are represented. So you have, you know, you have a couple of important noble houses marrying each other, and their kids represent both houses rather than just the fathers, which would be the standard way. Quickly, again, like I said, this is there's a lot of sort of setting and, and understanding things more than there's a lot of action happening. But something that I thought was interesting was just this conversation, like I was just saying, Rob and Joffrey. Uh, Joffrey is running his mouth. I don't know how else to say it. You know, what is yeah. from from ha- uh, the first half of the chapter, which is the women kind of thinking flirtily about him and how pretty he is. All of a sudden, he's kind of running his mouth a little bit. He says, why are we fighting with, you know, sticks instead of real swords? I don't want to use a blunted sword. This is a waste of my time. Even though Rob points out that when they were fighting with sticks, Rob seemed to be in the better position. Uh, yeah. And so there's what also, I think is, is oh yeah, go ahead. funny here is the contrast that you have from from Joffrey's getting worked up, uh, presumably because he lost, but then also watching his younger brother Tommen and Bran fight, just wrapped up in cushions. Like this is yeah. full on, you know, kids at at a wipeout 
tournament or whatever it is, just, <laughs> yeah. just padding from head to toe. And it is, it's for children. And, you know, I find it interesting that Roderick, the master at arms who's here training them, offers as a compromise that you can use turning swords, you can use blunted swords, which makes me think that, you know, they may not have been covered in padding from head to toe, but that Rob and Joffrey most recently had been using the padded swords. Uh, and I can get why Joffrey would be annoyed by that. Although, you know, do you really want to be hurt even more? And I think he sees this as a way to get out of losing again and to make himself look better than Rob in the process, even though Rob takes the bait right away and just jumps mm -hmm. straight for it. I'll add too that uh, something that I thought was interesting in these conversations happening in this chapter, specifically here in that sort of the, the quote unquote battlefield, if you will, right? Like where they're practicing the sword fighting. Uh, we've seen a lot of conversations from the adults' point of view when it comes to rank and prestige and how what that means in the relationship that they have with one another. I think most interestingly uh, kind of shared and thought upon by Catelyn, uh, this sort of, uh, you know, like he is the king. And, you know, not not all, uh, you know, once you become king, you, you know, who you used to be kind of falls away and you need to kind of respect that. Even though Robert and Ned are are quite friendly with each other, it's clear that there's right. there's rank that needs to be honored. It's interesting to now see this from the children, you know, the children doing this. And I think Joffrey has really leaned into the privilege that he is afforded him uh, as yeah. the crown prince. You know, he clearly understands that, and, and this is me projecting into the story, but it would seem to me that he understands that if they did fight with sharpened blades, that anything that would have happened to him would be like reflected right back to the person who did it. You know, yeah. it, it's even though it's technically more dangerous, it's actually a lot more dangerous, I would assume, for Rob or the person fighting with him, because you're going to now harm the king's son, the crown prince. And uh, and I think he understands that. And I think he's really excited to, to leverage that. You know, I think that's a possibility. Uh, at the same time, there are rules and structures to this society, and Rob is also from high nobility. So while, you know, that may be the case that there isn't a huge amount of risk to Joffrey in most contexts, and maybe that's what he's used to, this may be the one safe situation where somebody can safely hurt him. Uh, and maybe he doesn't realize that. I think that that's also a possible option. Mm. And I mentioned that, you know, there are two of the conversations in this part of the chapter that I want to focus in on here. Uh, and I don't know if you were going to or not, but the first one is what you're talking about goes directly to John and Arya's conversation when she first gets there. She says, why aren't you down there with everybody? And John immediately responds, well, bastard swords can't hurt royal princes. That's not allowed. And so, you know, again, we hear about bastards at the royal court in previous chapters. Who knows if this is 100% true, but certainly in Winterfell right now, if John were to hurt Joffrey, there could be an issue there. Uh, and maybe Joffrey would make it an issue. Maybe King Rob would make it an issue. Maybe Catelyn would make it an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, but that there is some fear there and that John is, is being left above. And then the second conversation I want to point out is the one instance where Joffrey asserts this privilege and he does it through a proxy. He does it through Sander Clegane, who we haven't really met yet. We've just heard mentioned a couple times. He has this, this burned face. Uh, mm -hmm. which is how we know it's him. And uh, when Roderick is telling Joffrey, no, you can't use real swords, that's not allowed, Clegane steps out from the side and says, what are you talking about? He's your prince. You don't tell him what he gets to do and what he doesn't get to do. And Roderick says, no, here in this environment, I'm the one right. that's in charge. I'm master at arms of this castle. I'm pulling rank in that sense. You want to go talk to my lord, we can talk to him. I mean, he doesn't say that part. Right. Uh, but he specifically says, the kids can use real swords when they're ready. I'm here training knights. This is how you train knights. We're not giving them real swords until we can reach a point where they can do that safely. And Sandor really, really pushes home the shame that Rob is feeling in this interaction by virtue of Sir Roderick not letting him fight by turning to Rob and saying, how old are you? Rob mm. says, I'm 14. I'm old enough. Don't listen to Roderick. And Clegane says, Okay, yeah, you're 14 and you can't even fight with real swords. I killed a man at 12. At 12, that's and right. And this prompts Rob once again to try and get back into the match. And Roderick still says no. And this is when things get so tense that Theon has to hold Rob back. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I really think that's so interesting to see, you know, the the man, fully grown man, clearly, that Sandor Clegane is, uh, stepping in on behalf of the prince to pull rank for him. And 
assert masculinity in a way that Rob is unable to respond to in this moment because of the trappings of the situation and the shame that that brings him, the embarrassment that he's clearly feeling and anger that goes along with that. Well, it's interesting because I think a theme that we've talked about plenty and that's come up plenty already is this idea of honor, right? Like, what does it mean to respect honor and to like sort of receive honor? And and we've seen a lot of sort of internal conflict to certain extents about what that means, especially with Ned and especially with Catelyn about what that what it means to show honor to their king, who's also a friend. But I'll add that that it's interesting to see this moment for exactly what you're saying, you know, that, you know, for all these talks about honor, there's a little bit of might makes right here, right? Like, like we honor this because they have the weapons, they have the strength. And in the same sense that Daenerys and her brother Viserys, who we've only seen for one chapter, they, Viserys wants honor, but he lacks might, you know, and, and without that, without that army behind you. And so all of a sudden, we start to see like this sort of crack in the armor of honor, just because you should be honored. This is the house of the Starks. This is Stark territory right now. But here's a man, Clegane, I think you said, right? Like the, the, with the burned face saying, listen, honor be damned. Like, like, like maybe I should respect you. Maybe I shouldn't, but this is the prince. And whether it's the prince or not, I will make you know, because I am stronger than all of you right now. And, and I thought that yeah, was just that, really quite an implicit threat in that I killed a man at 12 for sure. Yes, indeed. Uh, with that said, though, the chapter ends without much explosion. Uh, yeah. We just have this sort of understanding. Well, the explosion happens off screen. Arya goes <laughs> back and finds her mom and Septimus Morgan mom. and presumably yeah, right. gets in quite a lot of trouble uh, for her rudeness. You know, for all the sort of like like low level conflict that is brewing in this chapter aria running away from her stitching john not being able as a bastard to compete rob and joffrey going at it with kind of, kind of sniping at each other clegane stepping in with the potential of violence mm-hmm. this chapter still ends with calm right yeah. now everybody kind of goes back to their separate rooms and and, and so all is kind of fine attitudes have have come to the surface but all is really fine so far by the end of this chapter yeah so before we move on i'm, I'm going to leave my themes discussion for after brand two because it, it ties in there but i just want to talk about some of the world building from this because i think it's important to note mm-hmm. a couple of things the first one's very small we get beyond the Greyjoy sigil for the first time it's a kraken mm-hmm. uh, golden kraken which is cool because we know he comes from the iron islands which is obviously an island kingdom. Uh, (laughs) But next, you know, I just want to talk about Arya and Jon's relationship briefly. They're clearly very, very close. There's so much love in this interaction. And, uh, you know, you get that from very early on in the chapter with her interaction with Sansa over it, who does not seem to have that same relationship with Jon. And we get a lot of other considerations here uh, about what has led to that, you know, there's some of the outsider status, which we've talked about a little bit, and I'll talk about more mm-hmm. in the theme section. But there's the fact that the two of them have the Stark look. They and look none like of the other Starks. Kids do. Yeah, not yeah, like Rob Sansa. Yes. And, you know, Tyrion even noted that with John when we were in John 1. He says, mm. you know, you have the, the look of the North when your siblings don't. Uh, and Arya has that too. Rob, Sansa, Bran, and Rickon all take after the Tullys. We get a specific mention of the Tully red hair here, but Arya has the black hair of the Starks, dark hair, uh, and looks like John. So much so that when she was younger, she thinks back that she even asked John if she was also a bastard. She's right. like, you know, <laughs> we look alike. Maybe I'm not part of the family. And I thought this moment was really just the centerpiece of how loving and, and warm their relationship was because John one was all about how hard it is for him to be a bastard, to be called a bastard, to have that outsider status. And she goes to him terrified that she's like him, uh, which could be the most hurtful thing in the world. And honestly, probably felt that way to him, but instead of reacting with anger uh, or any negative emotion, he comforts her and says, no, you don't have to worry about this. We know who your mom is. This mm-hmm. is not a problem for you. Uh, and, and what better sign of love in a relationship like that than being able to put aside your own struggles and, and triggers to be able to be there for your younger sister? And I think that that was a really sweet moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last point that I wanted to highlight, which I'll be bringing up again later, Nymeria, we get a reference to. This is a name out of the stories that Arya plucks out, uh, which really fits in with the tones of the chapters because of the history of who this is, which I know you do not know. 
Uh, we get mentioned that she was the warrior queen of the Roin. Uh, we have heard of the Roin before. Do you remember that? No, not at all. So the Roinar are one of the peoples that are listed in King Robert and King Viserys' titles. Uh, King of the Andals, the First Men, and the Roinar. Mm. So this is one of the three major ethnic groups that uh, make up Westeros. Uh, the First Men were, as their name suggests here, first. They primarily still exist in the north. The Roinar were one of these like immigrant uh, populations that came from Essos. So the Rhoyne is a river that uh, goes north to south, pretty much the length of the continent. It is in the middle of the free cities, if you go and find a map. So it's, it's Bani is on the coast, but it is east of her, but west of some of the other free cities. So it's not too far away because Essos keeps going for a very long way there. But the reason why I bring this up is because the Roinar, you know, left their homeland and ended up settling in uh, Westeros, which we'll talk about at another time. But their population is culturally different from the Andals and from the rest of society that we see, yeah. uh, specifically that they allowed women to fight and uh, they used strict primogenitor as opposed to male inheritance primogeniture, which means that titles and property passes to the oldest child, regardless of gender. So this is why Nymeria became a warrior queen. Uh, she, you know, inherited that title and was able to be part of it and, and was a fighter and a leader of her people in that way. So that really gives some context to the fact that Arya chose that name to give to her wolf. Interesting. I had no idea, to be quite honest. Yeah, of course. No, these <laughs> things will come up later, and I expect you'll forget them yeah. by then. Um, but, you know, I think it's a, a character beat for Arya that fits in very well for this chapter, that this is one of her favorite characters from the stories. I like that. I don't mean to skip too far ahead, but it's in, in very early in the next chapter with Bran. Bran's talking about what he wanted to name his dire wolf. And he's like, oh, I wish I came up with Ghost, but Don already took Ghost. And who knows what Arya, you know, Arya went into her folklore to, you know, yeah. find it. And he has no idea who Nymeria is. Yeah, I thought that just spoke well, volumes about that, the, the depth of the the story that, that Arya brought it from, as well as the shallowness of where, where perhaps Bran was thinking. Uh, did you want to add more about the Arya chapter? Or should we go right into Bran? Nope. Let's go Bran. to Bran. Brand two. Uh, let's do it. So, so with with the last scene, so obviously they're all still up in in Winterfell and Bran. We now come into this the young young son, the second youngest, I think, not Rickon, but Bran. Uh, and yeah. from his perspective, and now no longer going to see a beheading uh, that his father is conducting. They're now here in Winterfell, and uh, he is anxious. Honestly, he's you know he's about to go down to King's Landing, and he know he he knows he is he he wants to be, and it's fun because I think we still see a little bit of that you know sort of youthful internal conflict. There's part of him that wants to be a Absolutely. real adult about this. There's part of him that is having a really hard time, and and I like and and I can respect yeah, it. I think it's crucial to say that he's not just anxious; he's so excited, but he's also anxious. It's that first day mm -hmm. of school energy, uh, and I love that it, it shines through so thoroughly. You can see him being a child, but you can also see him on the cusp of maturity and really yearning for that. Uh, and those two competing instincts that he has here are uh, are so true to life. I think we've all experienced that. Absolutely. He he really also has throughout this, uh, this sort of, and, and I'll say even before talking about the specifics, he, he, the chapter really starts with him talking, like thinking to himself about what it means to leave. And, you know, you can feel this excitement he has towards the new opportunity he has to get out of the North, to go to King's Landing, to be part of this sort of royal agenda conflicted with exactly what we're talking about. What is it is saying goodbye to the people that he's the only people he's ever known. Uh, and and he, it's clear to him, he, yeah. he says, you know, he even shares a, a small anecdote of trying to go and say goodbye, uh, I think, to to some of the people in the stables and, and immediately kind of turns to tears. And in the same thing that we just saw with Arya and with John before him, with before her, uh, you know, he runs away. He doesn't want people to see him cry. There, there, there's that sort of honor aspect. I'll add, I do want to point out that that there, Bran definitely has some of that rose colored glasses outlook that comes with youth. You know, everything is about to be milk and honey down in King's Landing. It's going to be so exciting, which I think is lovely. But yeah, I want to I want to jump in there yeah, uh, yeah. and talk about some of the thought process that he's going through at the start of this chapter, uh, mm -hmm. which is about that rose colored glasses. He's thinking a lot about what he wants out of life. 
mm-hmm. and where he sees himself. And specifically, his dream is to be a knight of the King's Guard. These are the best knights in the realm. Uh, and he thinks through this list of names of, of who all the ones from the stories are and how great they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of, all of those people, uh, whose, whose stories he knows. So, you know, it's interesting to think about the contrast. I, well, contrast is the wrong word, but in contrary to what you were just saying, he knows the songs. It's not that Ari is off in her own world that he's totally exempt from. It's just that she's talking about a different song and a different story than the one he cares about. He right. loves these knights and these legendary knights. Uh, and in thinking about that, he thinks about how there are, are two, but actually three Knights of the King's Guard that are here with the King right now. And we get introduced to some of these for the first time. We get Sir Boros, mm-hmm. uh, who is a bald man with a jowly face, and Sir Merrin, who had droopy eyes and a beard the color of rust. And then, of course, the third one, I'm actually not sure if we knew this already, but Jamie Lannister is a member mm-hmm. of the King's Guard. Uh, Rob says he doesn't count because he killed the Mad King, but he is a member of the Kingsguard still, and he is the third of the Kingsguard Knights who is here at Winterfell right now. I'll uh, I'll even add just one half one paragraph before he brings up these three Kingsguardsmen and, and what he thinks is so impressive. What something I really liked is that he he, he mentions Arthur Dane, uh, and he mentions Arthur Dane yeah. in a long list of other heroic story heroes, and I just thought this was interesting because here you have Bran, this young child. And his his sort of literary heroes, if you will, right? These sort of famous knights and 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 uh, and and heroic, you know, sword wielders. Where only a chapter or two ago, we were finding out from Catelyn that Arthur Dane may be the father to whatever Dane, whose name I'm already forgetting, that perhaps Ned slept with, that led to Jon Snow. And so, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Ashara is, I believe, Arthur Dane's sister, uh, mm, not daughter. Okay. Uh, but crucially, the part of that story that you're leaving out, this is one of Bran's heroes, but we know that Ned killed him. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's, uh, but but yeah, and, and right along there, and I, I can, I'm going to keep calling it rose-colored glasses, but this sort of, that youthful fantasy, right? They're, they're, you know, these are in real life men with swords who bleed. And in fact, we don't yeah. even die. Uh, you know, yeah. who, you know who's not listed in this list of, of uh, sort of fantasy heroes is his own father. Uh, who right. you would think if he did kill Arthur, well, would go up there. Ned's, Ned's not a Kingsguard. Is the, I mean, he is listing off all Kingsguard members, let's be clear. Uh, all the Brandon same, I just thought clearly loves his dad. Fun, fun and exciting. Yeah. Um, so let me let me talk about those names for a moment. Yeah, uh, please. Because I was going to later anyway. Um, but, you know, just to list them out here, we get a bunch of names in a row without much context. Serwin of the Mirror, Mirror Shield. Sir Ryan Redwin, Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, the twins Sir Eric and Sir Arik, who killed each other during the Dance of the Dragons, the White Bull Gerald Hightower, Sir Arthur Dane the Sword of the Morning, and Barristan the Bold. And we get a brief description uh, with the King's Guard. It's another celibate order, kind of similar to the Night's Watch in that sense. This one, uh, as opposed to defending the wall, defends the king, hence its name uh, and his family. Uh, Barristan the Bold, who is in this list, we learn is the current Lord Commander of the King's Guard, although he did not come north with Robert. And Bran thinks about how he's the greatest knight in the realm. Uh, But the thing that I really like about this list of names, and Bran even thinks about them in terms of myth, is is how the names really conjure a sense of myth and legend. These are exciting names for exciting people and even exciting events Mm -hmm. with the Dance of the Dragons. Uh, You can really tell that Bran knows these things from stories, you know, similar to the stories that we're reading and how these names get attached to people in the retelling. Uh, and we also, you know, even for the people who are alive right now, we have some examples of that Barristan the Bold being the latest one. But, you know, we have the Mad King was around 20 years ago. We have the Imp. Uh, and then we have mm-hmm. some other examples where these names are colored or even created by people who are using propaganda to tell their own story. Uh, And sometimes you have different names depending on who you're talking to, which I think is a really interesting touch. So, you know, we get a reference a couple of chapters ago to Jamie Lannister, the lion, uh, shortly followed by Jamie Lannister, the Kingslayer. Kingslayer, And you can see how those are two very different things. Uh, But similarly, you know, Ned himself just a couple of chapters ago was referred to as one of the usurper's dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is also very different from the Ned that we know. And so you really see how these stories are being brought in a very real sense. This is media. This is, is, is medieval media that people are creating their own tale and telling something about themselves, or sometimes it's being created about them. PR offices have been in high demand since forever and even in fantasy lands. Yeah. 
it's uh, it's good to have a good, good PR. Um, <laughs> nipping nipping right at the heels of this sort of fun fun depth that we get to go in with Bran about these heroes and these stories to him comes a really fun episode of him doing what he loves to do, which is climbing. Uh, and he goes that, and, and and we've actually heard of this already. Real quick, Catelyn, you, yeah, you skipped over the list of the uh, direwolf names. You mentioned Grey Wind. We already knew some mm. of the others, but I just want to point out Rickon in perfect baby fashion names his shaggy dog. Shaggy uh, dog. Yeah, this is like really that. just such a great moment of like a kid naming their doll doll. Uh, well, you say that, but I, I think Sansa falls right in there too, right? Like hers is named. Oh, Lady. absolutely. It's like yeah. okay, nice. You really, but yeah, yeah I think, well done. Yeah, I can very much, very much see that. But yeah, from there, we we really get into Bran climbing around, and there's a sort of lovely couple pages of just talking about the freedom that comes with that and how much he loves it. We've actually yeah. heard about his climbing from Catelyn earlier, talking about how Ned needs to make sure that he doesn't climb down in King's Landing, and uh, and and he th- this is. This is his playground, and he goes into that for a long time. This is he's sort yeah. of giving this wonderful farewell to the place where he grew up. He's exploring it on these rooftops. He's 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 jumping around. He 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 talks about how he gets to see a vantage point that no one else does, and just that it's beautiful yeah. to him, and 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 how intimate his relationship is with this world uh, of these rooftops, which which I really enjoyed. I had a really did lot, you ever a lot read of uh, leaping with him? I agree. Yeah. Did you ever read his Dark Materials, the the Philip Pullman series? You know, I didn't. I read the first 150 pages of the first one, and then I was like, meh, fantasy. Okay, well, then this will register. That that book, the main character is very young, uh, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of child childishness in a good way throughout that series from her point of view, which I think is wonderful. And within those first 150 pages, she has a whole thing about climbing around the rooftops of Oxford College where she lives and how mm-hmm. that made it her home. That was something that she really learned about it. And so I don't know which of those, this or that was written first, but it, it conjured up that image to me that there's such a childlike wonder to finding these secret spaces and things that nobody else knows and seeing things from an angle that doesn't, that nobody else sees. That's so beautiful. And because of it, we get such a fascinating set of descriptions of Winterfell that I'm not going to recap here, but you really feel how old it is throughout this chapter. It is sprawling. It is built by addition. There's no plan here. Nobody sat down with an architectural grid and built something normal. Everything is old rock and rough hewn and nothing is leveled and the hallways slope up or down and you can end up in random places by accident. It's all gargoyles. And we have this quote from early on in the chapter that I just love. The place had grown over the centuries like some monstrous stone tree, and its branches were gnarled and thick and twisted. Its roots sunk deep into the earth. And that's just such a perfect description. You can really see it in your mind, this old castle that has just spread over the hills that it's built on. I love actually kind of going off of that for a minute, but but Bran also talks about how much he doesn't like the, uh, and I forget its name, the god tree, the goddess tree, the tree. But he The heart tree in the godswood. And he, yeah. he says, and I really like this a lot, he says, trees shouldn't have eyes or leaves yeah. that look like hands. <laughs> like, yeah. First, it's a great it's a great way to understand that tree. And it's another great way to kind of be like, right, I, you know what? There are some things that are unnatural, even though that is natural. Yeah. It's unnatural. It's hard to argue with him on that, too. That's yeah. creepy as hell. Seems very creepy. Um, but as he's jumping around, and and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak pretty quickly through these couple of last pages of, uh, here so that we can come back and dig in a little bit further into them, because a lot happens decently quick uh in the last couple of pages here and and i think you and i were talking if if i'm not mistaken just right before we started uh recording today but you know i was saying a chapter last chapter i'm sorry in the last time we spoke the last episode we finally have our inciting incident death of john aaron i you know well i want to i want to i want to jump in quickly because the page couple of pages before we get to this inciting incident is the most aggressive foreshadowing in the world that I'm sure you picked up on because I'm sure this was one of the moments you remembered from the show, but we get like three pages worth of Bran remembering all the different people who tried to get him to stop climbing. Mm -hmm. Uh, His mom forbid him. He listened for two weeks and then screwed up and went admitted it. Ned tried to punish him by making him sleep in the godswood, which feels kind of child abusey. Don't make your kids sleep outside when it's cold out. Uh, But either way, he (laughs) climbed up a tree uh, and fell asleep up in the tree, which Ned thought was funny, and then gave up. Uh, but then we have a bunch of people who work for Ned trying to stop him. So maybe he didn't really give up. You know, old man tried telling him a story. Maester Lewin tried throwing a boy made of clay off the roof and showing mm-hmm. him it broke. 
Jory and the guards tried to chase him down. And through this all, Bran says, you know, I'm not made of clay and I never fall. I never fall. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, spoilers, but uh, at the end of this chapter, this boy falls. I, but, <laughs> but I will, I, I, like I was saying, you know, I was pointing at, fine, you know, we finally get to this inciting incident in the last episode that you and I were talking, which is we get the letter from Lysa, Catelyn's sister, sent secretly mm-hmm. saying that her husband, John Aaron, was was murdered and murdered by the queen. And in my mind, that was the thing that was going to really propel us forward. However, in great authorship, George R. R. Martin actually moves us into, it's almost like that, what I was thinking was the inciting incident with John Aaron was a feint. Uh, and here we actually have a much greater, much more in our face uh, and aggressive moment that happens. And so what happens, Bran, he's jumping around, he sees an old abandoned tower that he loves to climb that he hasn't climbed in ages and decides to go up. And as he climbs up, he starts to hear voices. Now the voices start to are, are quite cryptic to begin with and especially to Bran, mm-hmm. but as the reader, we start to understand things really fast. Yeah, so walk me through, what did you get from this? Okay, so, and I'll add with a with a big asterisk here, I remember this scene from the TV show. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I figured you did. Yeah, it, it's hard to not remember this scene. Um, but with that said, there's a few things that happen really that I think are, are major that we start to learn. So so in fact, let me give away the lead first and, and then come back yeah, to what funny. I was hearing. So we, we don't need to out, use pronouns for the next 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. So we, we find out a brand finally discovers and we as the reader discovers that who he's overhearing is Jamie Lannister and his of the King's Guard uh and his sister, the Queen Cersei Lannister. And not only twin that sister. Twin sister. Uh not only that, but they uh they were wrestling naked, Daniel, and making wet sounds. Um so uh we talked last time about some of George R. R. Martin's gross descriptions of sex. Oh we're gonna I'm this assuming it gets not raunchier than this. Um oh yeah okay sorry. But now, so so if, if we all know that that's who we're going to find out who it is, now let's go back. Bran is overhearing things as are we through Bran. And we learn a yeah. few things, which is basically Cersei is concerned about Ned becoming the Hand of the King. She yeah. mentions that she thought he would have rejected it. She wanted Jamie Lannister to do it. And it sounds like more than just she wanted Jamie, her twin brother, to do it, but that there is, there's a plot there is some type of plot being set into motion here about trying to get more power. And it seems like for the Lannister family or for Cersei mm-hmm. herself, Cersei, I mean, like it's, I'm assuming a lot when I say the Lannister family, this could just be a Cersei and Jamie thing at this point. Right. Um, it's very clear that Cersei is hyper uh engaged with whatever this plot might be whereas jamie is really kind of following her much more i'm not trying to push one way or another maybe that's because they're naked and he's just trying to get one thing at this point but that was sort of you know my takeaway was that he's a little more casual uh Uh and then i'll say i mean it really does seem like he's just flirting through this whole exchange and not really listening to her that was my takeaway at least and i'll say that there's a quote here that that i really liked uh cersei is saying to jamie She's saying this about her her husband, the king. My husband grows more restless every day. Having Stark beside him will only make him worse. He's still in love with the sister, the insipid little dead 16-year-old. How long till he decides to put me aside for some new Liana? And I like that because is this is this a political plot to overthrow a king or is this a queen who is sensing some real concerns about her stability and being a queen? Self-preservation. Yeah, self-preservation. Exactly. I will skip because I do want to give you some time to really go into some of the stuff that went here. So I'm going to skip towards kind of the end of this chapter, which is just a page and a half later. But basically, Bran, in trying to figure out who these people are that are talking, he can't see them. He doesn't want to be discovered. He makes some type of parkour move to try to see them and slips and is heard. Jamie Lannister catches him and actually brings him up and into the window, at which point uh, Cersei says, well, this this can't happen. And uh, Jamie Lannister kind of shrugs and says the things I do for love and shoves Bran out that window. Yep. So, yeah. So let's uh, let's sit with the political discussion for a little bit before mm-hmm. we get into the themes and uh, and really unpack what's going on here as best we can. So, like you said, this conversation starts with Cersei expressing concerns about Ned becoming the hand. She's particularly worried about his relationship and how close his relationship with Robert is. Uh, Robert loves him like a brother. Uh, Jamie responds 
Robert can't stand his brothers, uh, which is not really Cersei's point. But we <laughs> right. do get our first introduction to Robert's brothers here. Stannis and Renly are the two mm-hmm. mentioned. Uh, and Jamie points out, I'd rather have Ned as hand and as a potential enemy because he is honorable, whereas Stannis and Renly and even Littlefinger, who this is our first mention mm-hmm. of that name as well, are ambitious people who he'd be more scared about. Uh, this is the point where Bran realizes that they're talking about his father and realizes he needs to know who's speaking uh, before he goes back to try and tell anybody about it. Uh, Cersei says Ned means to move against us. That must be why he's coming south. Jamie again disagrees. He says he could be coming south for any reason. Here's the quote, duty, honor. He yearns to write his name large across the book of history to get away from his wife or both. Perhaps he just wants to be warm for once. Just wants life. to be warm. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And now the woman says, uh, you know, I'm worried about Lysa's accusations, Cersei says. And the man says, no, she's a frightened cow. She ran away back home as soon as her husband died. And Cersei says she was married to John Aaron. You know, who knows what she knows because of that. Mm-hmm. And Jamie says, no, if she knew anything, she would have gone to Robert before she left the capital. And then Cersei says, you know, she's going to be more dangerous now because she has her son protected. Now that she's back home, he didn't get handed over to the Lannisters in Casterly Rock. As a hostage. Uh, I mean, she even uses the H word in there, too, if I'm not mistaken. I thought that was really interesting. Kind of harking back to what things you had said uh, an episode or two ago about uh, Theon, uh, you know, being that sort of war to, to Ned Stark. Yeah. And at this point, Jamie pivots once again, says Lysa has no proof. Cersei says she won't need any. And this is where they get into Robert's waning love for her. She says, you know, if Mm. this accusation gets leveled against me, that may be all he needs to get rid of me. So I got to ask you, what do you take from this? They're being very cryptic here. What do you (laughs) think their conversation is focusing on? You know, why is Ned a risk? What's going on with Janice and Renly, if anything? Uh, And what is it that Lysa might be bringing up? Well, it's hard for me to let go of this 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 word that I have, which is plot. Like there's a plot. There's some type of espionage or plot right. going on. At the same time, it's hard for me to understand who's part of it. It seems like you have a paranoid queen, uh, right? Yeah. So it seems that more than a paranoid queen, it seems like we're getting a few things confirmed. John Aaron was murdered. <laughs> like, okay. like uh, you know, this is my my takeaway from it, right? Like, and and you know, this there there's concerns about Lysa and what she might divulge and what that might mean and what that might mean for this paranoid queen and what's going on. I will add, it made me think about. So I just want to say, like, sure. you know, I'm not trying to push you one way or the other here, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't say it. They don't say John Aaron was murdered anywhere in here. Yeah, but they're concerned about the proof or lack of proof that she might have okay. for whatever accusations. I don't think that there's. In my mind, there's not, not a lot of question about what they're worried about with Lysa. I don't think she's going to come back and say, I'm pregnant with another kid or something. Uh, and that's their fear. I think there's a real fear about who's, who's. Uh, I'm going to call it controlling the throne. But I mean that in the terms of, like, I think about it almost like, a, you know, 11 people around a table. And how many votes do you have for your your opinions about what should go on at the throne? Um, so they, they conspired to kill John Aaron. Mm-hmm. Lysa knows or has suspicions. And... Robert doesn't particularly care for Cersei, but loves, loved John Aaron. Uh, mm-hmm. And if Lysa were to show up with this accusation, even without proof, he'd have Cersei executed and go find some new wife. Potentially, yeah. And I think, too, it made me think about as well sort of the opportunistic uh, sort of feel, like 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 a feel that I have that about, you know, who the Lannisters are, just that Ned's constant reminder that they showed up late at the very end of the war and... Although that said, it's I have no reason to suspect, especially after meeting uh, Tyrion, you know the imp, mm-hmm. uh, the younger brother here, the uh, younger, the brother of of Cersei and yeah, younger brother and Jamie. But uh, you know he doesn't seem conspiratorial at this point. He seemed really supportive to John's. You know what I mean? He seemed really intelligent and supportive. Right. I haven't met any other Lannisters really, as far as I remember at this point. So so right now it's hard to tell if there's any sort of like you know, cabal of evildoers, or you just have like right. a, a very paranoid yeah. queen. I mean, I, I want to push back on your instinct here a little bit, because, sure. you know, like you point out, Tyrion has seemed cool so far in our brief interaction with him. Uh, and you also mentioned earlier that there may be some self-preservation going on here for Cersei. And I just think it's really important to remember that, you know, Ned has described his relationship with the Lannisters as pretty much a, a scab 
that reopens at the slightest touch. This is not somebody who is going to be giving them the benefit of the doubt ever, mm -hmm. uh, even before he got the message from Lysa. This is not somebody who is, is looking at them. He has history with them coming out of Robert's Rebellion, and he has no respect for this family. You know, it, I just want to continue insisting that it is, it is possible that John Aaron was not murdered, or that he was not mur murdered by the Lannisters. And if Cersei is at risk of what would presumably be death from that accusation being set aside because Robert is more interested in finding some young new wife that he saw swimming naked in the river, that, you know, taking these steps and, and talking with her brother lover about how to best defend herself is a rational and reasonable response to have. I mean, this that's, is not that's conspiratorial. Fine, but, but you're talking about things in a, in a and, and maybe this is my own lack of understanding this world at this point, but I'm not thinking of things in the extremes to which you're talking about, I don't think. Like, so what, what I mean by okay. that is, is that I don't have any sense right now that Cersei's afraid for her life. I don't have any sense that the fear is that, oh my God, something's going to come out and, and leave Lysa out of it for a second, right? That like, it seems like this has a lot more to do with sort of political impact than it has to do with life or death for okay. Cersei. So is she just going to be an ignored queen on the throne? He's sleeping with other women. He's pulling in other, you know, relationship, political relationships, much more than, oh my God, this crazy baddie woman Lysa has made up stories and these stories could lead to the end of my life. I thought there was an interesting question here about, uh, not question, but, but quote from earlier where before Bran kind of gets caught, he overhears Jamie saying, saying, well, it doesn't matter. Lysa doesn't have any proof, or does she? Uh, Cersei's response is, you know, well, I don't think she needs, you know, I don't, do you think the king will require proof? But I don't find that as, as a defensive comment of like this crazy woman who blah, blah, blah. It's we did, we, she and, and Jamie, or just she did something quite nasty uh, and proof or not, you know, this would be enough to kind of tip the scales and say like, this is, this yeah. is what people do in here. No. And that, that was, that was really it for me here is it's, it, this seemed yeah. a wonderful moment and scene to get, get a couple answers, you know? Yeah. Oh, why? It's not answers to questions that have come up, but answers to where is this all about to go? Oh, right. there is. I mean, conspiracy. we're starting to see, the politicking that Ned has been afraid of and that mm -hmm. Catelyn was talking about, you know, mm -hmm. these are the currents that he's going to have to deal with as he goes south. Yes, indeed. Uh, so that seems uh, like a good introduction there, a good jumping off point, like you were saying. Literally, the chapter ends with Bran halfway falling from the window down to the ground. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and that's the courtyard that's the rushed up to meet him. Exactly. I like that line. Yeah. So I, I have two themes here, which are kind of separated from the political discussion that I want okay. to get into, because I, I think they're very interesting. Uh, the first one, and, and this crosses both chapters, but is primarily about Arya's chapter, is just this is the first real thrust and real instance of gender dynamics that we've seen at play here. And this is so core to Arya's personality and to Arya's arc. You know, the contrast that is drawn between her and Sansa at the beginning of this chapter is on every single thing in their lives. Sansa had everything. Sansa could sew and dance and sing. She wrote poetry. She knew how to dress. She played the high harp and the bells. Worse, she was beautiful. And we have a line from earlier in the chapter. She even brushed, blushed prettily. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> Arya's envy, like you mentioned, is shining through here because everything she does is failing at being that picture of a woman that Sansa is so effortlessly. Arya's bad at needlework. She wants to play with swords instead of needlework. And her and John make the comparison explicit. John says, yeah, look at this. This is so much more fun than needlework. And she's like, everything's more fun than needlework. Uh, she's not pretty. We have a reference that Jane used to call her Arya Horseface, which is mm. a nice little mean bit of bullying there. Uh, she says she'd rather be a blacksmith or thinks about how she loves to ride horses. You know, that last one isn't clearly that, but it's, these are all male coded things in this society. And, you know, we get to see an instance of Sansa playing the role of a woman uh, through her politeness and through her, her manners, the things that you learn at finishing school effectively. She's able to 
uh, redirect Septa Mordane when she comes over to say, what are you guys chattering about? And she says, oh, isn't it? We're just talking about how nice it is to have the princess here. Hmm. Uh, and meanwhile, Arya thinks up front how much it sucked that at the, the feast they went to, she had to sit with the fat little prince, Tommen, uh, who is like, he's a baby. He's like Bran's age or younger. He's, he's a little kid. And she's just angrily calling him fat. And, you know, then the names of their wolves. You have Arya picking the name of a warrior queen who very much so fulfills what, at least in the society we've seen so far, is the Lord of the House role, uh, while Sansa named her wolf Lady. Uh, and so while, while Sansa is embodying the perfect lady in this patriarchal structured society that they have, she's polite, soft, pretty, romantic. She's so excited about her gallant prince that she's going to be betrothed to. Arya is constantly in friction with that role and gets herself in trouble for it all of the time. She is is so upset and struggles so much with her inability to just do what she wants to do, many of which are things that seem to be closed off to women of nobility, to girls in mm. particular, girl children in nobility. And she gets punished for it. You know, we have the explicit instance here where Septa Mordain is mad at her and then she goes and gets her mom and they're waiting for her at the end. We presume she gets punished, but we even have last chapter, Ned thinking about how he needs to, she needs to come to King's Landing because she needs to learn to sit in at court. And in a couple of years, we're going to need to find her a husband, you know, and, and that was a passing line in a brief moment, but this is very much so Arya's life and what she has to look forward is living a life like Sansa when she has so much disdain for Sansa and so much disdain for that role. And this really conjures up a, a new type of outsider status in the way that we've been seeing in prior chapters with John and with Tyrion uh, and potentially with others. And once again, she and John in their conversations make that comparison very explicit. She says, John, why aren't you down there fighting with everybody? And John says, it's because I'm a bastard. And the line that follows that is for the second time today, Ario reflected that life was not fair. It's not fair for John and it's not fair for her. And then we go from Arya straight into Bran 2. And the first half of Bran's chapter is all about how Bran is the male equivalent of Sansa. He is a young boy who wants nothing more than to grow up and be a knight and have songs sung about how good he is with a sword and how great he is at fighting. And he wants to join the Kingsguard where they don't even have to worry about women because they can't get married. And he loves the songs and he loves the stories. All of them display and deify this masculinity, this strong men who can fight and kill and participate in wars. And that's who he wants to be when he grows up. Uh, like all of these Kingsguard knights that he's memorized their songs and their nicknames and all of their stories. By contrast, Arya names her wolf after a warrior queen who is also from the songs and stories and Bran's never heard of her. Ick, you know, that's a story for girls. I don't have any mm. interest in that. And one of his first thoughts in this chapter is even to once again make this explicit. He's mad that he didn't get to go on the hunt because everybody else who stayed behind is John, who's a bastard, and Rickon, who's only a baby, and the girls are only girls. You know, right. I'm, I'm a man. I should get to go and be with the men and do the manly things. You know, and we talked about his struggles with leaving and how he still has that half of his, his childlike aspect, but he also has this yearning to go south and be more. He very much so wants to go south and live in a castle and be a knight and be one of the Kingsguard. You know, this is an adventure. It's exciting. It's scary, but it's exciting. And, you know, I think that the, the second half of this chapter, as we move through it, really shows some of the pitfalls that come from this attitude, from the insider status that he has here. There's the fact that he's still young enough that that wish that he has about who he wants to be in the future is not necessarily enough to keep him from being anxious and afraid. And he goes to say goodbye to people who he loves and he starts to cry. And, you know, loving people around you and crying about it is the least masculine thing mm -hmm. he can be doing here. But then even more so, we get to the end of the chapter. And the end of the chapter is caused by Jamie pushing him out the window. And of course, Jamie, no matter what Rob says, is a member of the Kingsguard. He is one of these knights that Bran wants to be, that Bran wants to live up to. And this puts a point on the way that these boxes, this gender performance, closes in everybody and closes their eyes to the risks of it. Because these people that Bran was celebrating are celebrated for their violence and for their skill with weapons and for their strength. And then he runs into that violence in the real world. And it is in the form of Jamie. 
And all of that performance of masculinity that he's been so impressed with, that's so fun that he wants to live up to and be, is now put upon him and he is, is pushed out the window uh, and falls to the ground. This is what it all means. These things that he's only heard the, the positive side of, the gilded side of, uh, and now he's seeing the steel, the sharp edge and the violence to it. It speaks to a really interesting, that like, I, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and finish what you're talking through? Yeah, no, just to close this out, I just wanted to say that it's interesting to see Bran come face to face with what performing masculinity really looks like. You know, it's, it's Jamie pushing him out of the tower. It's Sander Clegane saying, I killed a man at 12. What have you done? Which is not something to want to live up to. I mean, that's horrible. It must have been horrible for Sander Clegane. That's not a good thing for a child's development. It really makes you wonder if what Arya is reaching for is to be one of the boys and to be listening to and following Sir Roderick's rules instead of Septim Mordain. Or is what she's looking towards freedom and an escape from the the role that she's being forced into that she feels like she can't fulfill? Yeah, that's interesting. I I, I think it speaks a lot to, you know, there's there's almost this this euphemism that's out there a lot, which is you know, they, like the freedom fighter for one person is is the terrorist for another. Uh, and I think that that there's you know for all these stories that we keep hearing in the minds of of the younger folk in these books. You know, whether it's Arya and, you know, Namiria, the name from the dog and what she thinks she wants to be able to do and she wants to fight with swords and, you know, this 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 image in her mind of what she, the life she should have. And same with Bran, uh, you know, more privileged and able to get to it as, as a boy or whatever it is. But here's these heroes that he knows of. But the, the truth is, as we as you talk about the Cleganes, you know, you talk about Ned Stark even or, or Jamie Lannister. And, you know, these are not people who were given these titles uh, these heroic, you know, story titles, and then, you know, went to live up to them. These were people facing very real life situations in front of them that they then decided to act in a, in, in quite a, in this case, in the book, right? Like in quite, a, quite violent ways, how easy to think about it in that sort of sterilized child storytelling. There's a hero, he fought a bad guy and, you know, and, and was, uh, and was victorious and came back with the head of the bad guy and, 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 you know, I think about Beowulf and Grendel, right? Like the story of Beowulf is quite heroic. And then I think it's John Garner wrote Grendel, but from Grendel's perspective being like this, right. why, why are you beheading me? Basically, I can imagine right. that the, uh, the, 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 the book series, you know, Game of Thrones from the Lannister perspective, you know, Jamie Lannister caught a young spy, you know, who was yeah. peaking when he shouldn't have been. And Jamie Lannister did what right. any hero does is murdered this young spy and, you know, who was right. spying on the Kingsguard and spying on the queen, which is totally inappropriate. And I think that's just a. a yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it makes you call into question when we have this society that they're living in that forces them into these roles, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Mm -hmm. And are they what the songs are telling us? Are they doing these things and taking these actions against people who are, outsiders like Arya or John or Tyrion and, uh, are they doing it in service of reinforcing this status quo that maybe is not amazing and you know who uh, hasn't, for, for everybody and who hasn't we don't know yet. that we don't have the insight on those people yet but it's interesting to think about yeah and I think like probably the most explicit example of this is the characters that we haven't touched on yet in this part of the conversation Viserys and Daenerys right like yeah like these are the people who's their narrative to themselves and i'm going to use them as a group right like like let's just call them targaryen you know but the targaryen narrative is that they were illegally ousted by rebels and yeah. rebels have infested their kingdom and their and their and their uh and their castle and they need to go back and the and, people yearn for them back exactly and and for all i know at this point in where we are in the books that might be exactly what it is you know, there's politics going on amongst the high nobility. I have yet to meet any of the quote unquote regular class folk. Maybe everybody's yeah. waiting for the Targaryens to come back. And why would a Bran, you know, look at himself in the mirror and be like, ah, part of the evil empire? You know, like, right. no, no way. Of course, he's being brought up with victory speeches, not with, you know, we're evil, you know, put on your cape and cowl and and fill the night with scary stories. Are, are we the baddies? Yeah. Yeah. Are we the baddies? Uh, but it's, yeah, it's just definitely, definitely interesting uh, to to know that there are these different perspectives and, and sort of seeing how this is starting to unfold and kind of kick us off. Yeah. 
And I, I think that's a perfect segue into the second topic I wanted to bring up about Brand Story, because this is, is moving from the political and real world that I was just talking about into the mythological, because I think there are some really cool influences going on in this chapter that I want to highlight. Okay. There is a line in the section where, where Brand is talking about how everybody tried to get him to stop falling, where old Nan told him a story about a bad little boy who climbed too high and was struck down by lightning and how afterward the crows came to peck out his eyes. Bran was not impressed. There were crow's nests atop the broken tower where no one ever went but him. And sometimes he filled his pockets with corn before he climbed up there and the crows ate it right out of his hand. None of them had ever shown the slightest bit of interest in pecking out his eyes. And so, you know, before I dive into this, I just have to credit some influences here, which which led me to dig into this, uh, but the Nauticast, which I've mentioned a bunch of times, had a guest on, not for this chapter, but I believe for Brand 3, uh, who writes on a blog online under the name LML, which I will get back to in a moment in terms of what that stands for. Uh, but their discussions with him and then going and looking at some of his writings really made me think of this here. George R. R. Martin is doing something really interesting that I think we can draw a lot from here by mashing together a couple of mythological religious, religious influences with this one line from Old Nan. The first one, uh, which is, is pretty obvious, is Icarus. Uh, Bran is the boy that climbed too high and was struck down. And he his hubris throughout this chapter, I mean, we're talking about a young child here, so I don't want to put too much blame on him. But this is so central to this whole thought process that he's going through. Everyone in his life came to him and said, stop climbing. It's dangerous. You are going to hurt yourself. And every single one of them, he turns around and he says, I'm not going to fall. The crows have no interest in picking out my eyes. And then, of course, when he climbs to the top of the broken tower, which itself was broken because it was the highest point of the castle and was struck by lightning and collapsed, he falls from there. And, uh, you know, that's it's such a, an interesting call to that idea of, of climbing and overreaching and getting pushed down. And that's what happens here. But of course, the why he falls is, is crucial because it's not really a fall, it's a push. And that brings us to the second influence, which is Prometheus. Mm-hmm. Prometheus, as the Greek titan, created humanity by crafting them out of clay. And he was also known as a trickster and very famously stole fire from the gods and brought it to the humans. And this is a story that has been told and retold a bunch of times. First written version that we have is from Hesiod. Prometheus goes steal back Zeus's fire and give it to the humans. And then Zeus punishes him by chaining him to a rock and having an eagle come and peck out his liver, which then regrows overnight. Zeus also, in the original tale, punishes humanity by sending Pandora, the first woman, into the world. And her story, of course, very famously is opening Pandora's box, which releases uh, death and disease and suffering and misery into the world. Uh, The myth was expanded by other writers that followed Hesiod. Prometheus's role in crafting humanity out of clay uh, either first came from or was heavily expanded by Sappho and Aesop and Ovid. And they added and really emphasized that Prometheus is responsible, along with his brother Epimetheus, for distributing the natural qualities among humanity, the good and the bad. And then Aeschylus, or Aeschylus, who wrote plays, uh, wrote Prometheus Bound as part of a whole system of plays about the Prometheus story. And this was, in addition to the human qualities, the arts and the sciences were bestowed on man, that this is what the fire was really a metaphor of. And this, once again, is both good and bad, that you have the creative, but also the destructive possibilities of these. You know, there's a very famous quote about the nuclear bombs, that this is the fire of the gods brought down by Prometheus once again. And this story, all of these myths have often been interpreted as you know, a metaphor, an allegory for imparting knowledge onto humanity. Fire as a metaphor for technology and science and learning, but in both a destructive and a creative sense. The Pandora aspect of the original story brings in the same consideration, that the gift of knowledge, the gift of fire, was also accompanied with destruction and war and sorrow and hate. And so central to this is knowledge and intelligence. And obviously that ties in to the Garden of Eden, which concludes with Adam and Eve eating from the tree uh, of knowledge of good and evil and gaining that knowledge. And that is the reason why they are cast out of paradise and humanity is cursed to labor and toil and live and procreate outside of the garden, outside of paradise. And so this one line story that we have here picks up on so many of these considerations. Prometheus stole the fire of the gods from Zeus. And the boy and man's story was 
struck by lightning for climbing too high and had the birds pick at him. This chapter in front of us has Bran climbing up the lightning struck tower, uncovering forbidden knowledge, the knowledge of the gods that Cersei and Jaime are sleeping together and conspiring against people and being cast down for it. And while the crows haven't started to peck him yet, we end with the note that they circled the broken tower waiting for corn. And so you have to wonder what punishments are awaiting humanity because of Bran's hubris, because of Bran mm. climbing too high like Icarus. What Pandora's box did he open that we're about to embark on this series about? Interesting. Interesting. I like that. That's cool. Uh, a cool connection. Yeah. So that's all I had on this. Uh, and we covered my world building notes already. But, you know, we just got to ask. You may already know the answer to this one. Is Bran alive? I do already know the answer. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we'll leave this for next time. Season season one. I'm I'm remembering more and more as we read. Uh, Fair enough. Yeah, but honestly, what I don't remember is what happens next. So I am very curious to see how he's found, what stories he tells, where this sort of goes from there. So so I'm quite quite interested to see what's what's next for us. All right, that sounds great. We are going to do two chapters again, which is Tyrion one. We get a point of view from him. And I'm sorry, I looked this up before we started, but didn't write it down. Uh, John 2. Love it. Well, as always, Dan, just a pleasure and uh, looking forward to talking about the next two chapters with you. Talk to you then. All right, bye. That's all for this episode. After we finished recording, we changed our plans, so next week we'll be discussing four chapters, not two. A Game of Thrones Tyrion 1, John 2, Danny 2, and Ned 2. If you've enjoyed our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast on whatever platform you use and following us on Twitter at bros, B-R-O-S, with banners. Thanks, as always, for listening.